Matthew 27, we'll read from verse 57 through verse 8 of chapter 28. Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, where you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. We'll stop there. Father, we bow before you and we thank you for our Lord Jesus who is indeed crowned Lord of all. Christ, Lord from all eternity, Christ crowned Lord by His work as mediator. We praise You, Father, for this, this task that He took on, becoming a sacrifice for us to atone and make propitiation for us. God, we thank You that He has risen from the grave and that He ever lives now to make intercession for us. And God, we... We are so grateful that these are not just concepts or ideas or even holidays to, to celebrate. But God, they are reality. And for the believer, they are life. God, we, we looked this morning in the prayer meeting at how our lives are to adorn the gospel. But God, we also praise you that this gospel has, in a sense, adorned our lives not as a centerpiece to be admired or a thin veneer to wear, but it has become life. And our lives are not what they were before. 
God, we do want lives that match the glorious realities that we believe and that that you have come and, and made our own, that you have put within us by putting this, this new life within us, by giving us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. But God, we praise you for the great work that Christ has accomplished to make these things realities, to make them truths to live upon and, and, and to make sinners to be saints. God, we, looking at these truths, truths that, as Les mentioned earlier, are not truths just to to think about on a a special Sunday, but God, really, they are truths that we celebrate as a body weekly and as individuals, as individual believers daily. God, we, we want to worship you in them. Father, we pray that the the weight of these realities would be felt by all assembled here. And that our hearts would be turned together to worship our King. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew 28, we'll be looking particularly at verse 6, where the angels say to the two Marys, He is not here, for He has risen, just as He said, Come, see the place where he was lying. Today is Easter. For many, Easter is a long weekend with candy and eggs and bunnies. And there are those in that crowd who are largely ignorant of anything concerning Jesus of Nazareth, including his resurrection. For others, they may know some of that, but they're hostile to the gospel. They're hostile to Christ. They may scoff at the notion of a resurrection or the need of a Savior. For many in our land, Easter is a religious holiday to tip the hat to Jesus. Attendance swells in many churches where people don't otherwise attend. But for many of those people, Christ is really you know, indifferent. They're indifferent to Christ. They're irreligious otherwise. And they live as though Christ does not exist. He does not really fit their lives. For the believer, it is in some ways another Sunday. Because as already mentioned, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord every Sunday. We meet on Sunday, the Lord's day, because Jesus rose on Sunday. Charles Spurgeon wrote, we gather together on the first rather than the seventh day of the week. Because redemption is even a greater work than creation and more worthy of commemoration And because the rest which followed creation is far outdone by the rest which ensues upon the completion of redemption. While we may not talk specifically about the resurrection every Sunday, everything else that we look at, every sermon preached, every prayer prayed, really all hinges upon the reality of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, everything else is empty. Everything else is so much talk. The resurrection of Jesus is as necessary to our salvation is, as is his death. The death of Jesus satisfied the justice of God. The resurrection, though, is the evidence of that satisfaction. 
And it is upon this truth that the believer cast his hope. Quoting again from Spurgeon, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I risk my whole eternity, and the resurrection is the why. The resurrection is an oft-repeated theme of the sermons found in the book of Acts. The first sermon that, that Peter preaches. He preaches the resurrection. But it's also a recurring theme in pretty much every epistle that's written. In Romans, we're told that Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. In 1 Corinthians, He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians, He who raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also. In Galatians, Paul, the apostle, he is an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. In Ephesians, Paul prays for a number of things for believers, which he states are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In Philippians, Paul prays that he may know him and the power of his resurrection. In Colossians, we're told that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In 1 Thessalonians, we are waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. In 1 Peter, Peter begins his letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Revelation 1, Jesus is the living one who says, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. The resurrection is a major theme of Scripture, and it is a central doctrine of the Christian faith. Like the apostles, we gather together on the first day of the week, and we hope that Jesus may come and stand in our midst, as it were, and say, Peace be unto you. Here is the foundation of all our hope. It was Jesus who said, because I live, you will live also. It was Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. In Matthew chapter 28, these two Marys have come back to the grave of Christ. They were there when He was placed in the tomb. They've come back after the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, as it's about dawn, to visit the grave. And what a shock that morning must have been for them. Because of the Passover, Jesus was buried hurriedly. But now they've come, verse 1 says, to look at the grave. Some of you have lost loved ones, lost friends, and you have visited the grave, perhaps as a part of the grieving process, and perhaps that's one of the reasons they're there that morning. But on this Lord's Day morning, as the women arrived at the tomb, a severe earthquake had occurred, and the angel had rolled away the stone. This morning was not going as the two Marys had anticipated. They arrived and found that Jesus was not there. The fact that he was not there is proclaimed by the angels 
As they say in verse 6, he is not here. Can you imagine? This is the right place, isn't it? This is the correct tomb and there's no headstone. Yes, yes, it's the right place. It's the correct tomb. But here's where the Prince of Life was laid. But, but you're mistaken in this because he's not here. He, he's not here. Where is he then? Has somebody moved him? That's what the, the scribes and the Pharisees had, had uh, um, been concerned about. They'll hide him. And this deceiver will deceive us really then because everyone will say he's risen. Has his body been stolen? Well, no. <laughs> he's not here. He is risen. He's risen. He's, he's gotten up. It's the same word that uh, in other places could be translated wake up. Jesus wasn't just asleep. He was dead. But he gets up. He rises from the dead. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, speaking of the apostles, Luke writes, to these apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering. <laughs> He's risen and he presents himself alive. The fact that he was not there, shocking as it was to them, in one sense, I guess shouldn't have been shocking because they'd been told that he would not be there. The fact that he's risen was predicted by Christ. The Pharisees and scribes remember that. He said he'll rise after three days. But Mary and the apostles, the disciples, seem to have forgotten it. They have come to see a corpse, not a resurrection. And so they are surprised to find that he's not there. When the angel says, come and see the place where he was, they go inside the tomb and he's not there. And the angels appear to them there, the book of Luke tells us, and explain further and tell, him, tell them to go and, and to tell the other disciples that, that he's not there, that he's risen. But all of this is according to prophecy. All of this is something that Jesus himself has said would occur. In Mark chapter 9, just for one place, verses 31 and 32, he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. He foretold it. Now it has happened, just as he said. And then it is observed by them. As I mentioned, they go into the tomb and they see it is indeed empty. And then later they do see Christ himself. The Lord Jesus was laid in the grave, but he was not lost to the grave. He rose again. And the evidence of that is not just that the grave is empty, although there is that. But it is that so many people saw him. Mary and Mary see him. The disciples see him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Many, many people saw the risen Lord Jesus. It was obvious he is alive. And so much of our hope hinges upon it. In 1 Corinthians 15, there's that passage where Paul argues the resurrection of Christ and all that rises and falls upon the fact of the resurrection. And he points out in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ is not raised, then there's no resurrection for you. You will not be raised if he's not raised. And your faith is in vain. I mean, your faith is only as good as its object, right? 
And if your hope is in a Christ who did not rise from the dead, then you've hoped in one who's not the Lord. There's no evidence that his death satisfied anything. And so your faith is vain. The apostles are liars. You are still in your sins. The dead in Christ have perished. And we, Paul says, are most to be pitied. Because we wander around in this life believing a delusion. If it's not true, then there are all of these promises in Scripture that are broken. Prophecies unfulfilled, types of the Lord Jesus that lead nowhere. If it's not true, then Christ is not our man in heaven. And He is not now interceding for us. So much stands upon this resurrection Well, Matthew gives us these facts, but I want us to think beyond just this this morning as we think about the resurrection and gather some things from other portions of Scripture. And I want you to consider with me, how did Christ rise from the dead? And I don't just mean like the cause of it. We'll talk about that a moment in a moment, but also what kind of attends that? So, for instance, Christ rises from the dead with majesty. It's not a, a you know, a an unheralded, uh, low-key kind of thing. He rises with great majesty, even if a lot of the world is oblivious to it. We've already seen in Matthew 28, verses 2 through 4, that an earthquake comes, the angel comes and rolls the stone away. The angel's appearance is like lightning, his clothing white as snow, the guards shake with fear. And so all of that's going on. But we also have... By the resurrection of the dead, a declaration. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says of Christ that he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, he's declared to be something by the resurrection. It is the son of God with power. The word translated declared is a word that we get our English word horizon from. It is something that, that marks a line of demarcation. So the horizon, we look out, well, we can see the horizon. The sky and the earth meet, right? And there's a line there. One begins and one ends. The resurrection is a kind of line of demarcation. There's a truth marked here of something that's happened. And this declaration is made by the resurrection of Christ. That's a new reality. It marks Jesus as the son of God with power. But, but what does that mean? Jesus was already the son of God. And as God, he's already omnipotent. He has all power. So what in the world does it mean? It's not a change in his essence. But the resurrection does declare... That he has indeed conquered death and the grave. The resurrection declares that he has been highly exalted by the Father as the God-man, as the mediator. And so you have passages like Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Speaking of Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's an exaltation that belongs to him because of his work as mediator. And the resurrection declares that. What Christ has done as mediator has been accomplished. It satisfies the wrath of the Father. The debt is paid and the resurrection declares it is done. It is finished. What he said is finished. It is in fact finished. It's accepted. And Christ is exalted as mediator. In Acts chapter 2, verses 33 and following, the Bible reads, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, again, he's already Lord in Christ, but he's been made Lord in Christ by the accomplishment of this and the honors that are his now as our mediator. It's the fulfillment of promises, of prophecies. It's the accomplishment of salvation for His people. It's the upholding of the majesty and the justice of God's law. He has already possessed a majesty that's His by right, by by the fact of who He is. He's God. But here is the majesty that's His as our mediator. Christ rises from the dead with majesty. He also rises with attendance. Angels attend his resurrection. They're there to announce it. But there's also others who attend his resurrection. And I don't just mean the Marys who've come to to view the tomb. In Matthew 27, back in verses 52 and 53, the Bible says the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city And appeared to many. Jesus' resurrection was adorned by the resurrection of others. And these others who were raised are saints. Many bodies of the saints. Other Christians. Others who've who've hoped in Him and looked for His coming. When Christ was raised, following His resurrection, they came out of their tombs, entered into Jerusalem, and were seen by many people. And evidently recognized by many people. Can you imagine? Bill? Is that you? You died ten years ago. Can you imagine? But here are all these saints who have come and are being seen by the people of Jerusalem. And they come after His resurrection, I believe, giving witness to His resurrection. Christ has risen. What are you doing here? I'm here because Christ has risen again. He left the grave. He's alive. Christ rises by His own power. There are verses that describe God as raising Him from the dead. 
or by the Spirit being raised from the dead. But there are also verses in which Christ very clearly says that He takes up His own life. Christ rises from the dead by His own power. And those saints who came out of the grave here rise from the grave by His own power, by the virtue of His resurrection. And we're going to see in a little bit, that is the same power that guarantees that we will one day, Christian, rise from the dead. The angel who rolled the stone away may have moved the stone, but the angel did not cause Christ to come out of death into life. Jesus resumed the life that he himself laid down. In John 10, 18, Jesus said, No one has taken it away from me, my life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus is said to be put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Here, the Spirit, I don't believe, is the Holy Spirit, but it's Jesus' Spirit as opposed to the flesh. That is, He's made alive by His own divine nature as opposed to His human nature. He gets Himself up from the grave. We see this also in Romans 1.4, which we looked at a moment ago. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And there it sounds as if the Spirit of holiness being spoken about is Jesus Christ our Lord. By His own Spirit, His own divine nature, He has the power to get up out of the grave. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, in John 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. I have this power in me. I have this authority. And as he calls Lazarus from the grave, he'll one day call us from the grave. Christ rises next as the firstborn from the dead. He's called this in Colossians 1.18. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now, there are others who rise from the dead. We see it in scripture, including Lazarus, including these who, who come out of the grave. But let's talk about those who come before Christ. So Lazarus and and others that we read about in Scripture. And yet Jesus still rightfully holds the title firstborn from the dead based on at least two things, and perhaps others, but at least two. One, these who came out of the grave accepting Christ did not come by their own power. But Christ did. And so in that way, He is the firstborn from the dead. All others who come out of the grave are raised by the power and the virtue of Christ Jesus. It's not their own power. But also, those who were raised before Christ Jesus die again. 
Christ Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the first to rise from the dead, take up his body, and never die again. And so again in Revelation 1, I was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. He does not die again, and he's not the last who will come out of the grave never to die again. And that leads us to the next point, and that is this, that Christ rises from the dead as our representative head. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits. But it's a taste of what's to follow. In Romans 6, 5, we read, If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. You understand that we are all born in Adam. Christ, uh, Adam is our, our representative by birth. And we all sinned in Adam. We all fell in Adam. We all have inherited death in Adam. And the only way to escape what Adam has won for us, if you will, is to find a new head, a new representative. And there's only one. And that's Christ. When a person is born from above, that person now has a new representative. A new head, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our representative when He goes to the cross. There He dies as our substitute. Because we're represented by Him and united to Him in His death, our debt is paid and we will not have the wrath of God poured out on us. But if He is our representative in death, if we are united to Him in His death, we will also be united to Him in His life, in His resurrection. As our representative, when He rose from the grave, conquering death and the grave, He secured our resurrection. And so Jesus is said in Ephesians 2.6 to have raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's the first fruits. But there are other fruits to follow. He, is, he, he comes from the grave, rising from the dead, as the representative of His people. So Christ comes from the grave with those things attending Him, if you will. That then secures or guarantees our resurrection. So the next major point, the last one really, is this. How does Christ's resurrection secure or guarantee our resurrection? Christ's resurrection secures our resurrection first by a payment. Now, I don't mean that His resurrection itself adds anything to the payment made. The debt was paid by our Lord's obedience and suffering. But the Scriptures speak of our justification as being tied to the resurrection. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over because of our transgressions, delivered over to death. 
And he was raised for our justification. Because of this, there are old writers who speak of the resurrection as being a meritorious cause. That is, it in some way secures our resurrection. It somehow secures the completion of this transaction. But in what way? Well, let me try to uh, give you an illustration that might help. And this is not an exact, okay, but hopefully it will make a point. Imagine that you co-sign a loan for someone. Maybe it's a family member who seems to have had a kind of, you know, rough go of it. And maybe they just, their rough go of it is because they're not so trustworthy. Who knows? But anyway, they, they talk you into co-signing a loan and your house is somehow tied up in all of this. And you find out kind of late in the situation that payments are not being made regularly and your house is in danger and so you go to the family member and you have a heart-to-heart conversation with them and say, look, you know, you said you could pay it and it's time to pay it. And look, I will take care of it. Don't you worry. I promise. I go to the bank today. I'll take care of it. And so they call you that evening and they say, I went to the bank and I have paid off the loan completely. You don't have anything else to worry about. It's, it's taken care of. And you think, thank you. Thank you for taking care of that. You go to bed that night. And you wake up wide awake and you think, what if they're lying? What if the debt hasn't been paid? I mean, it's easy to say that. What if, you know, I find out I'm in foreclosure and I lose my home because they said they took care of it and they didn't. And so you wake up and you call your relative and you say, look, you know, could you just give me some assurance here? Because I, I'm, I'm really concerned about this. And so they drive to your house and they hand you the loan papers that are stamped. Paid in full. And you see the evidence that the payment has indeed been made. Christ's resurrection is the paid in full stamp, if you will. The payment has been made. Okay, but how do I know? How do I know it's paid in full? How do I know the Father actually received the payment? That it's been applied to the correct account? Have you ever had that happen? How do I know? Because God has declared it through the resurrection of his son. He's the son of God with power. A declaration has been made through his resurrection. Jesus' testimony concerning what his death would accomplish is trustworthy. He's not your relative, okay? Not in that sense. And the testimony of all of scripture is trustworthy. But in the kindness of God, the resurrection is the loan paper stamped, paid in full. The resurrection is given to us by God to satisfy our faith that God Himself is satisfied with the payment that's been made and the debt is no more. It's done. It's canceled. This certificate of debt has been removed. It's it's no longer there. It's not on the books anymore. He's been raised because of our justification, our transgressions have been paid for and satisfied by his being delivered over to death. But the proclamation that the debt's been discharged, that was necessary. And it's been accomplished by his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul writes, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. How do I know I'm not still in my sins? How do I know my faith is not worthless? Because Christ has been raised. 
The evidence is there. Christ has accepted the payment in full. Also, uh, while the debt has been paid, uh, um, the, the resurrection of Christ is not a private matter. It's a public matter. And so you could think of it this way, perhaps. Uh, it's it's a, pu- a public proclamation. And so the, the cancellation of the debt is not something that's been done in secret and hidden away, and you have to go and you know, try to, to find someone who will tell you about it. But it's, it's like a public note burning. It's, it's done. Everyone, we want you to know the debt's been paid, that the note is burnt, and it is no more. The certificate of debt has been removed. Now, since Christ Jesus has risen, signifying that the debt has been paid, He has made the way possible for us to be raised from the dead. Payment. Here's here's the receipt of the payment. It also guarantees our resurrection because of the power that's been demonstrated in His own resurrection. It's the very power that will be used to accomplish our resurrection. Is he strong enough to raise himself? Then surely he's strong enough to raise me. Christ's resurrection signifies that he has conquered his enemies and ours. His victory provides our victory. Christ was victorious over death by means of his death. Hebrews 2.14 Therefore since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus conquered death by means of his own death. And that's why he cries, it's finished. Now that sin's been removed and the law has been satisfied, death has no more strength to sting Christ. And so death fell with him. But he also conquers it by means of his resurrection. He proves that death has no power to hold him as he gets up out of the grave and death cannot keep him there. He leaves death behind. Death has lost its grip on him. It can't hold on to him. Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It had no power to hold him. God raised him up. And so now, having conquered death, he has the keys of death in Hades. Death cannot hold Jesus Christ, and neither will it be able to hold those who belong to him. United to him, so united to him, are his saints with him that Paul writes to the saints at Ephesus that he has raised us up with him, in a sense, already, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 3, 3, Paul writes, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. At the appropriate time, the dead in Christ will be raised by Christ, their head. Again, united with Him. His saints are so united with Him that Paul argues from Christ's resurrection... Two hours, and then he argues back from our resurrection, back to Christ's resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Now if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. You say Christ hadn't been raised, then you can't be raised. And if you can't be raised, then Christ can't have been raised. (laughs) They stand and fall together. You can't have one without the other because we are united together with our head. In Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, again, Paul writes, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in the believer. And that same spirit will give life to our mortal bodies. The resurrection of Jesus does not just provide for the possibility of resurrection. It assures it. If he's risen, they will be risen. If they don't rise, he hasn't risen. Third, the resurrection of Christ provides for his saints. It guarantees that by providing, if you will, a pattern The resurrection of Christ guarantees His children will also be raised and it guarantees the dimensions of what that resurrection will look like. Jesus' resurrection as the first born from the dead, as the first fruits, is a pattern for our resurrection. In Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. He will transform us and conform us to His likeness. As He does that, in this resurrection, we will have the same body. It's not a different body. It's a changed body, but it's the same body. Jesus' spirit did not leave his body only to inhabit another body. When he rose from the grave, he rose in his own body. And even now as our man in heaven, those wounds are yet visible above, though in beauty glorified. We don't change bodies, though our bodies will be changed. We inhabit the same body. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 53, Paul perhaps pointing to himself as he describes this, says, for this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. Your body will still be your body and you'll still be you. When I was about nine or ten, about my boy's age, we went to a different church. My dad became a pastor of a church out in the country and uh, they had a different hymnal than we'd grown up with. So we learned new hymns, like many of you learn new hymns when you come here. They weren't all great hymns, but they were different hymns. And there was one song that we sang that uh, was about the resurrection. On the resurrection. On the resurrection morning, when all the dead in Christ will rise, I'll have a new body. Praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. So, as a kid, nine or ten or so, I heard this. And, the, you know, they would sing parts. And so... On the resurrection morning, all the dead in Christ will rise. 
the ladies would sing, I'll have a new body, and the men would come in booming, praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. And as a little kid, I thought, honestly, they were singing, praise the Lord, I'll have a new wife. I'll have a new body. Praise the Lord, I'll have a new wife. It took me a little while to figure out that's not what they're saying. Well, you won't have a new wife, and you won't have a new life in the sense of a completely new body. You'll have the same body. It will be a changed body, but it's still your body. If God raised us up to another body, a different body, that would not be resurrection. That would be creation. Resurrection is the raising up of something that has fallen. Christ raises us to life, to inhabit the body that was already ours. Now, the same body, but it is a different There are differences. It's improved. Jesus took up His same body, but there were differences. He went into the grave subject to death. He rose in power. And in Romans 6, 9, we're told, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. There's a substantial change right there. And every saint who rises from the dead rises never to be gripped by death again. Death no longer is, has any subjective power or objective power over the believer. In a similar manner, our body, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 43 and 44, is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. When the Bible speaks here of a spiritual body, I don't, it obviously doesn't mean we become a spirit without a body like a ghost, but rather a spiritual body as opposed to what we are now. There's a change that occurs. And in that change, weaknesses and flaws and defects and deformities will not characterize this resurrected body. These are all effects of the sin and the fall and our bodies will be resurrected and changed in that way. John Didier mentioned in the prayer meeting uh, the word cosmo and, and how we get the word cosmetic from it. Um, and some people, you know, sometimes you, you go and you get a makeover and the makeover really is kind of a, a you know, it's, it's a new exterior that you, you wash away, but it's still, it's still you. And underneath this kind of exterior, whether it's clothes or hair or whatever, everything else is still the same. But here's a makeover that is substantial, that's enduring, that really is beautifying. When Christ raises us from the dead, there will also be a priority. Jesus Himself is the firstborn from the dead. He has the preeminence in everything. But when the resurrection of the dead occurs, everyone who has ever died will be raised from the dead. You do understand that. It's not just the believer that will be raised. In John 5, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In his response to Felix, Paul wrote in Acts 24 verse 15, 
having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Everybody will, at the appropriate time, come out of the grave or the sea or cremation or wherever you know, your dead remains are. They will rise. But when we rise, the believer will rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And on that day, it will be a day of joy and gladness. We're talking about Christ's resurrection as a pattern for our own. The Lord Jesus was raised from the dead to be glorified. He's crowned with honor. It's a wonderful, joyful day for Him. It's a wonderful, joyful day for every believer. The Lord Jesus has risen. He's risen indeed. And so it will be a wonderful, joyful day for His children. Isaiah 26 verse 19 says, Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to her to the departed spirits. Why will we be so happy? Why will it be a glad day? Well, one reason is because we were made for a body. God created us to inhabit a body. And leaving this body is not natural. God has promised to not only redeem the soul of man, but to redeem the whole man, to redeem the body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes something about this, beginning in verse 1. He says, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, to, to lose our body, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. God made us to inhabit a body. And Paul goes on to the sixth verse and he says, when we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And we usually think about that in sense, the sense of we're absent from the Lord. And it's true. But he does say we're at home in the body. There's something natural, right, about us inhabiting a body. It's for this body that we groan. A redeemed body, along with all of creation. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. It's natural for us to inhabit a body. But it will also be a day of joy and gladness because our spirits 
which if, we, if we've died in Christ, our spirits will have already been received by Him and made sinless. And on that day we'll be joined with a body that's also free from sin and its effects. We won't be resurrected to a body that's still encumbered by sin, but a body that's free of sin. Our holy souls will be joined with holy bodies. It wouldn't be a joyful thing for a holy soul to be put back into a sinful body. It'll be a glad day because we will forever be with the Lord in a body. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. We will be with Him already. We will worship Him until that resurrection day. But once resurrected, we'll spend eternity worshiping Him with a glorified body. When we talk about the resurrection, I hope you understand that resurrection doesn't just mean life after death. Again, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord for the believer. And so it's not a matter of, of you know, kind of a state of, of non-existence until the resurrection. It is to live again with our body, a glorified body, in the presence of the Lord. It is to have a completed salvation in which every aspect of God's salvation has been accomplished because He is redeeming the body also. One other thing, and and we'll close for this morning, and that is that as we look in the New Testament, resurrection is so often equated with hope. There are, other, there are places in the New Testament that speak of hope and it's not directly tied to the resurrection, but so many of them are. For instance, in Romans eight twenty four, in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for he who hopes, for who hopes for what he already sees. And what is it they're hoping for and looking for? It is the redemption of the body. We just saw that a moment ago in Romans 8. We're looking for that. We're hoping for that. We're groaning for that. Creation's groaning for that. It's, it's our hope. We don't see it yet, but it is a reality that's coming. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He's pure. Because when we see Him, we're going to be made like Him. And even in places where the scripture speaks of the hope of salvation, and it doesn't mention resurrection. The hope of a completed salvation is a hope of resurrection. Well, next week Jordan Thomas is going to be preaching. Lord willing, in two weeks we'll come back and look at some of the implications of what the implications of resurrection for us now. What does it mean to be a people who serve a resurrected Lord now, today. Jude 24, 25 Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion 
and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.